Let's pray together. Father, your love is indeed amazing, and we pray that you would cause us to understand the words of Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And Lord, I pray that you would grip hearts with these words. I pray that people would be I pray that it would be like they've been plugged in, Lord, that it would be like the lights have come on, like the electricity is now coursing through them. I pray, Father, that these words would come with your own power, the power that made the world, the power that gives life to the dead. Lord, I pray that you would do it through your word, by the power of your spirit, and leave none of us unchanged. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open a copy of the Bible to Romans chapter 1, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 16 and 17. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. As you turn there, you you may be familiar with these famous words that Paul utters in verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And many of us, I think, if if you're like me, um, you you might have a reaction like, why would he say that? Why would he need to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? And our, our reaction, that question, just reveals how distant we are from Paul's culture and how we don't understand the culture in which Paul lived. And also, probably, we haven't really thought as deeply as we should on everything that Paul himself went through. So I want to invite you to consider with me some things that Paul describes about his life. If if you're familiar uh, with the New Testament and with Paul's life, this will will seem uh, uh, natural and, and ordinary. But maybe if you're not so familiar with the New Testament, this will be eye-opening to understand why Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we are afflicted. He's talking about himself and other ministers of the gospel. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, persecuted, but not forsaken. So, The reason that Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is because everywhere he goes, the gospel gets him persecuted. And persecution in the ancient world, just as today, would not have been pleasant. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, describing these persecutions. He says that he he has been in far greater labors, far more imprisonments. So, This this means that the Apostle Paul was seized by the authorities. His liberty, his freedom of movement was constrained by their bonds, and he was locked up. He was imprisoned. They, They curtailed his activity. This means that in public, he was shamed. He was treated like a criminal. He says, in far greater imprisonments with countless beatings, and often near death. These beatings would have taken place in public. 
where people that don't believe what Paul believes, people that don't want him talking the way he talks, they decide that in order to stop him from saying these things, they're going to, they're going to need to pummel him physically. He, and and he, he goes on to say, with countless beatings, so this happens so many times he doesn't even try to number, number the beatings. He says, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. The Jews, they didn't want to beat someone to death, so they said, you can only give someone 40 lashes, and then just to be sure that we're not crossing over the line, we're going to do 40 lashes minus one. So five times they marched him out into a public place where everybody could see what they were going to do, and they whipped him with these 39 strokes. And his response to this, how would you respond? If you're, you're charged to go proclaim this message, and everywhere you go, riots break out over this message. And you keep getting beaten by this message. And you get imprisoned by this as a result of your proclamation of this message. There's a man named Brian Rapsky who tries to bring out uh, the, the nature of this in Paul's culture. He says this, The first century Mediterranean culture where Paul lived was dominated by honor and shame. It's an honor-shame culture. He, he says, it is thus easy to underestimate the stigma attached to incarceration and bonds. Ancient literary sources link prison with dishonor. The process of being publicly conducted there, particularly while bound, and even the wearing of chains when one was not imprisoned or prison-bound was perceived, as was intended, to be degrading Public exposure, irrespective of innocence or guilt, resulted in a shame that could be lifelong. So Paul is living in a world, an honor-shame culture, where these realities are in place, and he's charged to preach a message that keeps getting him publicly shamed. And his response to it is, look at verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And, and you might notice that word for at the beginning of verse 16. Look back at verse 15. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it in spite of everything that it has brought into his life. All of the shame that the culture has tried to heap on him, all of the shame that the authorities have tried to make him feel. And he says, no, I'm eager to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And, and what he's going to do is explain why. But before we get into that explanation, I, I just want you to, to um, consider one more statement that he says later. He says this to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He tells Timothy, um, he says, For this reason, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So everything that Paul went through, I mean, you would think he might say something like, I don't want anybody to have to go through what I've been through. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying to his beloved son, Timothy, join me in this suffering. Don't be ashamed of me and join me in this suffering. Why would he say something like this? Well, here's, here's what I would propose to you. To be ashamed of the gospel 
would be for Paul to be ashamed of Jesus. To be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of Jesus. So what Paul is doing is he's going around proclaiming this message about how he was in the wrong before God, he was guilty before God, and what he deserved was the full wrath of God to be poured out upon him. And what happened is the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus himself, stepped forward and said, I will go, and I will be beaten, and I will be stripped naked, and I will be publicly shamed in Paul's place, and I will be nailed to that cross, and I will die on his behalf. And the people killing me, they're rebels. They are, they are in the wrong. They should not be doing this. There is no justice to their claim on me. They're wicked. But I will go and suffer in Paul's place. And I will pay his penalty. And Paul is recognizing those people beating me, they're wicked. They're in the wrong. They don't have honor and glory and righteousness on their side. They're treating me the same way they, they, they treated Jesus. And for me to feel their shame would be for me to say, you guys are right. You guys are right, and Jesus is shameful. That's what, Paul, that's what it would be for Paul to feel shame. So what he's doing is exactly what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 17 when he talks about light, momentary affliction. I mean, beaten five times, uh, 40 lashes minus one, beaten times without number, uh, often near death, all of this. He says light, that's light, momentary affliction. And the reason he can say that's light, momentary affliction is because he's thinking about an eternal, that contrasts with momentary, weight, that contrasts with light, of glory. Paul is looking for an eternal weight of glory that this message communicates to him. And that eternal weight of glory overwhelms this light, momentary affliction and makes him ready to say what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where he says this. He says, uh, if, if we're God's children, we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. So Paul is looking at the suffering that he's enduring as an opportunity to be identified with Jesus in the right against the wicked world, which is visiting the persecution and the suffering, and that wicked world is in the wrong. And he's saying, for this short time, I'm going to identify with Jesus and endure the suffering so that I might be glorified with him. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in, who are in Rome, verse 15, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the question for each of us, none of, none of us has been through what Paul went through as a result of the gospel. I don't think anybody in this room has been beaten for the gospel, stoned and left for dead. None of us have been through that. But we've all felt it, haven't we? We've all felt the temptation to just let it go. And, and, and sometimes the persecution or the affliction, the shame of the gospel, the reproach of Christ, sometimes it's little more than a, an inclination of the head of one of our family members. We walk in the room and they make a movement or a gesture that communicates to us that they don't want to hear it. 
Or maybe we're interacting with someone. This happened to me this week. I'm interacting with a guy, and I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't want to hear this. He doesn't want to hear this. He doesn't want me to go there. And I'm tempted. I'm tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. I'm tempted not to communicate the best news in the world. We've all felt that temptation. We've all felt that temptation. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if you're a believer, you need to lock in on what Paul says here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then what we need to do is we need to lay hold of these two reasons that he's going to give us, that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And we need to so pray that the Lord would write those reasons on our hearts. And then you need to take action and write those reasons on your heart and memorize these two verses. I would encourage you to do this. And then meditate on these truths with the result that you will go there and cross the line and say, I don't know what the best opening question is. Do you go to church anywhere? Are you a, are you a person that believes in Jesus? Do you know the gospel? Do, are you familiar with the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you know this message? Are you aware that the living God is, is seeking people to worship him? Would you like to know about this? Would you like to know something that will, that will result in you being in possession of the right to be a child of God? To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God. Born not of flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but born of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul tells us two reasons here why he's not ashamed of the gospel. Look at what he says here in verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. What is he talking about? Well, the gospel, that, that word, gospel, is a shorthand for a, a broader understanding of the good news of what God has done to save the world. I don't know if you're around young people in high school. Often uh, high school students and college students, they get fired up with this enthusiasm and they want to change the world. Well, the gospel is the good news of what God has done to save the world and it's the good news of the way that he has set in motion the, 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 the events and his plan that will change the world. It's the message of Christ's cross and Christ's kingdom. And, and the gospel, this message, this good news, it, it entails, it assumes a lot of things. Okay, so it assumes the idea that God, the creator, is holy. And since he made the world, he has the right to set the rules in the world. And he never breaks the rules. He always lives in accordance with the rules because the rules are a reflection of his character. God the creator is holy. It also entails the assumption that we, we are sinners and we don't keep the rules. It's like, it's like what happened to me in the last, just in this past week. We're, we're having some, um, some work done in our house that entailed some demolition. So it entailed some trash. And uh, I called the trash company. And I told them that that extra trash was going to be out there, but I didn't inquire into their requirements. I wasn't really interested in their requirements. I just wanted what was easy for me. I wanted my convenience, 
and I wanted what would work for my schedule and what would work for the amount of energy that I wanted to put into this. And so I just had all the trash out there on the roadside. Well, the trash company didn't pick it up because I wasn't in conformity to their requirements. And you know what I felt in response? Anger. Anger. Well, they have every right to say, listen, if we're going to pick it up, this is the way it needs to be prepared because it's not our job. To to, it's our job to clean up your trash when it's rightly uh, packaged. It's not our job to you know, package your trash for you. If we did that for everybody, we'd never get our job done. You got to do your part and then we'll do our part. That, they, they are, it is within their rights to do that. Just like it's, in with, it's within God's rights to say, I made you and this is the way that you can live in a healthy way. And if you go away from that healthy way, you're going to kill yourself. And, I, and, I, and you know what we do? We decide, well, it's more convenient for me or it's more desirable for me. And this is the way that I, that I want to go. And then when the consequences start falling, you know what we feel? Anger. We're mad. We're, we're frustrated that we didn't abide by the rules. Well, so then it gets worse. Trash is out there on the roadside. They don't pick it up. And then, and then people call me from the homeowners association. And they're like, you got to do something about that trash. You can't just leave it there on the roadside. And so I'm like, okay. So I go out and I bag it all up. And I put it where I think it's supposed to go. Again, I didn't inquire with the Homeowners Association what the requirements were. Because I still just wanted my convenience. I wanted what would work for me. So then I get another message. That stuff can't be out there until the night before the trash people come. And now I'm, I'm so mad. I mean, you've heard this phrase, um, uh, so mad I could spit, you know. Um, you, you've heard people refer to... Um, that, that, that's so frustrating it can make a preacher cuss. Well, I, I, that's where I was. That's where my heart was. I mean, I was angry. I was not happy about this. But listen, it's their rules. They made the rules. I'm in the wrong. And I'm mad about it. I'm mad at them because they've exposed me as being in the wrong. One of these guys, it's, it's amazing. I don't know if this guy's a, any kind of a believer but one of these guys with the Homeowners Association, he actually did something that was really Christ-like. He said to me, he said, I can come over and help you deal with this if that would help. You know, that's, that's what God has done. He made the rules. The rules are for our good. They're for our life. They're for our health and our enjoyment of the good world that he made. And we break the rules because we want to. Because I think I know better than God and I think what will serve me better than what God has commanded. And it's like what this guy, John Chapman, an Australian evangelist, what he said is true. He said, we don't break God's commandments, they break us. We don't break God's commandments, they break us. So we start breaking the commandments, and then we start suffering the consequences, and what happens? We get angry. We get mad at God. That's where we are. And then you know how God responds to this? He sends his only begotten son. He sends his beloved Son, who takes the full weight of the shame, all the consequences, and he opens his hands and he spreads his arms and he allows himself to be crucified in our place. That's the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done to save the world. That's the good news of what God has done to set in motion his plan to transform the world when Christ reigns in his kingdom. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. They can beat me. They can put me in prison. They can frog march me through their square and try to treat me like a criminal. But actually, I'm with God, and God's in authority. And, and this petty little light momentary shame that they're trying to heap on me, this guilt that they're trying to make me feel, this is all false. This is not lasting. It is not true. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is the saving message that God has given to the world. And look at what he says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. The message of the gospel, this, this message that recounts the facts that display God's power, this message of the way that God I mean, I don't know how God did this. Do you know how God did this? I don't think any of us could explain how God did this. Somehow, God made the eternal and infinite second person of the Godhead able to be limited to a human body and not surrender any of his deity. I don't know how he, I don't know how he pulls it off. But somehow, God becomes man. I don't know how he can be localized and not everywhere. Maybe he, I don't understand the mysteries. But God did it. He sent Jesus the incarnation is, is a stupendous di display of God's power. And then, then the infinite Son of God propitiated the infinite wrath of God by His death on the cross. That is, that is a stunning display of God's power that He could accomplish this through Christ's death. And then He raises the dead corpse of Jesus from the dead and thereby makes a way for the whole world to be reconciled to him. This is God's power. The gospel is the power of God. It's the, it's the message that communicates God's power. And also, I think another aspect of this here, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. This is remarkable. This is, this is, it's, it's miraculous, really, the way the Bible works. As the words are communicated, the power of God comes. So Jesus said in, in, in uh, John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, um, the flesh is of no help at all, but the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The words of Jesus give life. John 6, 63, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So it's just like when God speaks, let there be light, and it happens the words of Jesus, when they're spoken, God's power comes through them. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 18. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth. He's talking about the new birth. He, brought, he caused us to be born. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God brings people forth by the word of truth. People hear the gospel. They hear the good news. They hear this message of God's salvation. And something happens in them. The power of God works in them. And they go from people who think that Christians are a bunch of losers and, and people that are hypocrites to thinking, you know, I think I want to be one of those Christians. It's the power of God that brings this about. Uh, Peter writes, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, 
You have been born again. Note James 1.8.10, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. This new birth happens as a result of the word of God coming. The word of God comes and it's like a seed that falls on the ground. And then the Holy Spirit causes life and the power of God comes and there's growth I think this is what Paul is saying when he says, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. This message of the gospel, think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. It pleased God to save through the foolishness of what we preach. Yeah, it sounds foolish. It sounds foolish, the idea that, that the reigning God would allow his son to be crucified. Who would make up a story like that? That's, that's dumb. That's not how you establish control. That's how you get defeated. Well, through the defeat, through the foolishness of the defeat, God saves people. And it pleases God to save through the foolishness of what we preach. Through, the pre through what's preached. That's how salvation comes. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. This is why... The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active. If, you, if, you're, if you're here and you're not a believer and um, you don't want to become a believer, you know what the best thing for you to do is avoid the Bible. Don't go anywhere near the Bible. Don't let anybody talk to you about the Bible because the Bible will change your mind. The Bible will change your heart and you won't be able to do anything about it. You'll be, you'll, so if you want to stay an unbeliever, you need to stay away from the Bible. That's what you need to do. And anytime somebody starts talking the Bible, you need to go, na 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 And you know what? If God is after you, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. The author of Hebrews says, um, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The Bible will cut you up. I, I may have told you this story. I was passing through uh, the airport. You know, I was going through TSA, and uh, they wanted to inspect my bag, which is just a Bible in there, you know. And they said, is there anything dangerous in the bag? I said, the Bible's in there. You better watch out for it. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. What are we believing? We're believing the gospel. We're believing what God has done for us in Christ. We're believing, yeah, he's the creator. He made the world. And that's why all the numbers line up. And that's why my body works the way it does. And that's why babies are able to be born. If you you ever thought about the way babies are born and you know how they're made? That's why all that stuff works so perfectly because God made the world. God made the world and he made it to work. You try causing that to evolve. It's not going to work. God made the world. We come to believe this. God made rules. There is abundant testimony all over the place that God made rules. You want some, you want some testimony, some evidence? Just go to a funeral. And there they are. The wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. Everybody's going to die. There it is. God made the world. God made the rules. People die. And God sent Christ. And Christ rose from the dead. And this guy, Paul, he kept preaching the message in spite of everything they did to stop him. It's like Paul was saying, you know, you know, Timothy, they keep beating me. They keep throwing me into prison, and I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. They're going to have to cut off my head if they want me to stop preaching the gospel, which eventually that's what they did. 
That's the only way to stop him preaching the gospel. The only explanation for that, the only explanation for why none of the, the, the 12 apostles broke, none of them said, hey, we made up the story, we concocted the lie, we stole the body, they all got persecuted. None of them broke. You know why? Because they all believed he had been raised from the dead. They all believed. They, all, they watched him ascend into heaven. And they couldn't help but believe it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. This is, as I said a, a week or so ago, this is a Turkish Jew writing to Italians. And, and he's saying to everyone who believes, anybody who believes this message can be saved. Then he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, I've been listening to this biography of Lyndon Johnson. Paul's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And, and in this biography of Lyndon Johnson... It, 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 it's detailing his first campaign for, for Congress. This guy, whatever you want to say about Lyndon Johnson, we could say a lot of things about him. This guy says a lot of things about him. Um, he was a worker. He worked hard. I mean, one of the refrains of this, of this biography is days made no difference to him, nights made no difference to him. And, and he's talking about the way that Johnson is campaigning to be elected to Congress in Texas. And he's, he's in a district that is not densely populated. So what he's doing is he's driving to these farms one by one, all day long, day after day, and, and just driving all over this part of Texas trying to win these people's vote. And then listen, listen to this paragraph. One scene which Carol Keach was to recall vividly 40 years after that campaign, so often had it been repeated during that campaign, occurred at the end of a day of campaigning. The sun might be disappearing behind the hills. The first stars might be out. Or perhaps darkness would already have fallen. The black darkness of the hill country, unbroken for miles by a single light. He might have pointed the car back toward Austin. If it was dark, the city would be a glow on the horizon as he sped through the black hills, so tired that he could hardly keep awake and could think only of falling into his bed. And then Johnson, sitting beside him, rechecking in the fading sunlight or in the light from the dashboard, the list of names he had been handed that morning would realize that somehow they had missed one. That one farm back there in the hills behind them had not been visited. If that happened, Keach recalls, we would go back. No matter how hungry and tired we were, no matter how far it was. Sometimes I could hardly believe we were going back, but we always did. He would turn the car, and they would be heading away from the glow in the sky, back into the hills, back along the highway looking for the mailbox. This one guy said, this, Ed, this fellow named Ed Clark, he said he had seen a lot of campaigners. I never saw anyone campaign as hard as that, he would recall 40 years later. I never thought it was possible for anyone to work that hard. Paul is saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then he says, this is for the Jew and also to the Greek. And he doesn't want to miss a single one. It's for all of them, this message. 
we ought to care at least as much about the eternal soul of someone in the image and likeness of God as Lyndon Johnson cared about votes. Romans 1 verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's own righteousness. Sometime back, um, Matt tweeted that he, had, he was singing in his house and he sang a particular line of the song. And, um, and then Willa kind of stopped him and, sa- and sang it herself. And then she looked at him and she said, that's how you do it. <laughs> the righteousness of God is, is God's own standard. And, and the reason I tell you that note, is, or that, that little story about Willa singing, is because, because there is a right note. It is God's standard. And what, what God did when he sent Jesus was, it's like he says, that's how you do it. That's how you sing life. That's what Jesus shows us. So Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, number one, verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Number two, for in it, in the gospel, in the life and death of Jesus... The very righteousness of God is revealed. From faith, for faith. I think what Paul means here is it starts from faith and it builds faith. How does it start from faith? Well, again, you got to believe that God made the world, you got to believe that God set the standard, you got to understand and accept the idea that you broke the standard. So I got I to gotta let go of my anger about having to deal with the trash. And i got to recognize the trash company has rules, the neighborhood has rules, and I'm the one who's broken the rules. I don't know how you've broken the rules for your own convenience, but we've all done it. We're all sinners. And what you've got to do is you've got to get past that anger to the place where you accept and realize, I'm in the wrong. I'm the one who broke the rules. And, and, and then you come to a place where you realize, I'm guilty, but God has made provision for the guilt In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. If you receive this by faith, you will then have the the gospel build up your faith. And and if you ask me, how does that work? How would would the gospel build up my faith? Well, in response to that, I would say, what you need to do is listen to Jesus sing. In other words, look at his life. Look at him. Look at the way he lived. Look at the way he died. Look at the way he taught. Look at Jesus. Listen to the perfect notes, which you're now trusting. Yeah, there's a standard. He's the one who kept the standard. He died. In, you, you look at him. You listen to him sing, and you'll grow in your conviction that it's right. So if you're here this morning... And you're thinking to yourself, well, when I came in here, I didn't think I wanted to be a Christian, but maybe I'm a little bit open to this. One thing you could do is start reading the gospel. Open, open the Bible and start reading any one of these. Take, take Mark, take Luke, take John, take Matthew. These guys wrote their books to conf- convince people to believe in Jesus. You could start that way. There's a bunch of people in this room that would love to sit down with you and read through a gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Number one, it's the power of God for salvation. Number two, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, and here Paul quotes the Old Testament, the righteous shall live by faith. So what Paul is saying, I think, is this is what the Old Testament teaches too. The Old Testament doesn't teach 
law-keeping as the way to be saved. The Old Testament teaches that those who are made righteous will be made righteous by faith. The gospel will produce in you gratitude. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. The gospel will produce in you prayer. Verses 9 and 10. God is my witness that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. The gospel will produce in you a love to give. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. I long to see you that I may impart to you, that I may give to you spiritual gift. The gospel will create in you a love for God and his people. Romans 1, verse 13. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you. And the gospel will cause you to feel an obligation to tell everybody about this. It'll produce in you the eagerness that Paul describes in verse 15. It's really, it's really miraculous, the power of the gospel. Uh, Johnson Pang sent this update on um, little Timmy. And, and as I, I read this, I, I couldn't help but think to myself, that's the power of the gospel. This dear couple has this little boy who's 118 days old as of August 31st, almost four months old. He, wears just a little, he weighs just a little bit more than eight pounds. And they've, there's a picture of him, you know, he's all intubated in this hospital. He's on all this medicine. The doctors are doing all this stuff to keep him alive. And then listen to what he says here about the nurses and the doctors that they're interacting with. He says, we've since learned that many working in the, the PICU, prenatal intensive care unit, can easily get jaded. They see so much suffering. They spend time with children who may die under their watch. They struggle through the ethical issues, keeping children or babies alive, but at what quality of life? When is taking heroic measures more for the parents than for the children? These, these questions inevitably, Johnson writes, lead to life's greater questions. Essentially, they are confronted with the issues of life and death, what ought to be and what has gone terribly wrong. And then he says, I mean, this man, his child is suffering this way, and this is what he says. We pray we can be a light in a dark place and an encouragement to point people toward God in Christ. He's not angry at God. He's not shaking his fist. And he's not turned introspective. The gospel is producing in him a desire to see other people come to know the Lord. He says in the next paragraph, we may be here in Baltimore for Timmy, but God may have greater plans yet for some of these people to know Christ through our stay here. Please continue to pray with us that people would come to know the Lord through our witness. That's the power of the gospel. The gospel will make you somebody that loves others and loves the Lord. It'll make you somebody that knows that this message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your power has been at work even as I have preached this sermon. And I pray, Lord, that you will have convinced 
people in this room, that you love them to the point that you would give your own son that they might live. Lord, I pray that you would cause all of us to own the fact that we were in the wrong. We were the transgressors. We had no right to be angry. We had no right to pursue our own convenience and what we wanted to do. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus, to hear the beauty of the notes that his life sings. And Lord, I pray that you would then fill us with awe, that you, one who would create people who can enjoy something like music, one who does all things well, who has never done anything inappropriate, anything unholy, anything defiling, that you would allow the most holy one to be defiled in our place. Father, I pray that you'd fill everyone, every one of us in this room with love for Christ, a love so great, a love that comes from the power of the gospel and a love that makes us ready to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God. Herein is the righteousness of God revealed. And Lord, we marvel that that you would make the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him, by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, you are so good to us, so unaccountably good to us. Help us to love people. Help us to live lives that are worthy of this gospel. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.